Welcome back to Humans of Purpose, the weekly podcast featuring conversations with local purpose-driven leaders, leaders creating social impact through their work and fostering in a new era of social progress. We want you to listen, connect, and grow with us. Learn more at humansofpurpose.com. We can take 200 or 300 people with a disability away for a few days at a time um, throughout the year. That's awesome. Like, let's just have fun and um, give people the opportunities that everyone else gets. But really what we've actually seen is the the long-term impacts are that people come on our camps and they grow in confidence, they grow in independence, they um, have an ability to navigate the real world easier than maybe they otherwise would. Welcome back, Humans of Purpose Nation. Those are the compassionate words of Dean Cohen, who is CEO at Flying Fox. More on Dean and Flying Fox shortly. First, thank you to all those who completed our second annual listener typeform survey. There's still time to get that done if you want to have your say on the Humans of Purpose experience and go into the mix to win some awesome prizes too. It takes less than five minutes to do and helps me to better understand who you are, what you want me to improve, and how to create something that adds more value to your life each week. You can find that survey link in today's show notes or by heading to humansofpurpose.com and hitting the launch me button down the bottom of the page. A big welcome to our fourth new Patreon supporter this week, B, who takes us up to 10 Patreon supporters and even closer to achieving our goal of 30. A big thank you to B, Joe, Lyndon, Olivia, Bonnie, Joel, Misha, Stuart and McCartan for your support and for making this podcast possible each week. Your support via Patreon means a lot to me, as it's the main way that I measure the success of the podcast in terms of its value to you, the listeners. It's the best way of showing me that the podcast is socially valuable and has an impact on you and our community collectively. With your support, I can spend more time and money to improve the podcast and help to reach more people. Our Patreon supporters get a stack of perks, including a custom Humans of Purpose thank you gift on sign-up, as well as access to a dedicated Humans of Purpose Plus Patreon feed that gives them 20% more content each week, as well as access to some behind-the-scenes discussion. This unlocks a deep-dive segment copped out of our general podcast feed each week and adds some extra insights and behind-the-scenes look at each episode too. Today, I'm thrilled to have Dean Cohen on the podcast. Dean was referred to me by a podcast stalwart, Simon Fievel of Social Ventures Australia and Simna fame. Flying Fox are creating social opportunities for people with disabilities, and their work is pretty incredible. I really enjoyed talking with Dean, and think you're really going to enjoy our conversation too. Dean, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Thanks for dropping in. It's a, it's a pleasure to finally connect with you. I've had um, ref- referrals of you in by the great Simon Fievel, who's a repeat offender on the podcast. I listened listen to one of his. He keeps coming back, so that's good. <laughs> but you did choose Hunters over his I did choose Hunters. preparation podcast. Yeah, I definitely did. Um, Hunter is definitely a well-spoken guy, so I knew listening to his would be good. Did you feel like a little bit nervous choosing Hunter over someone else's for a speech? <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Set, set a really high standard before I come in. Very Absolutely. Uh, well, good. Well, great to have you here. I would love to hear basically a little bit about your journey um, and into Flying Fox eventually, but take me as far back as you'd like to go and cool. tell me a bit of your origin story and how you came to be here. Yeah. So I grew up in the Jewish community, got involved in everything in the Jewish community that I was supposed to, went to a Jewish day school and um, got a lot out of that and developed a real passion for being involved in the community. I went to a Jewish youth group, which was centered around education and um, being able to provide, being inspired and empowered to provide educational programs for for younger kids. Lived in Israel for a year, played soccer for Maccabi, the local Jewish soccer team, and uh, really got involved in everything in the Jewish community that I needed to and was supposed to and benefited hugely from it as a result. And then studied commerce at Monash, so continued my involvement in the Jewish community. Um, yeah, so that's, that's... Is that considered a Jewish day school, Monash University? Yeah, basically. basically. It's year 13 of Mount mm. Scopus. Mm. Uh, so loved that as well. Hated studying, but but loved being part of the community. So continuing on uh, in, into a university surrounded by other young Jews was, was cool for me. I guess the challenge that came with that early on was uh, didn't really branch out too much, didn't have too many friends outside the Jewish community. So uh, going to uni was, did have a bit of a cultural shock, which is, which is interesting, uh, pretty, pretty sheltered, sheltered upbringing. But, um, but yeah, that, that's uh, an interesting one for me that, that ended up in a position where um, I was just pretty happy and, and lucky with my lot in life and got to do 
cool things as a result. So you say you have a fairly privileged sort of start. Abs- yeah, absolutely. Supportive family. Um, spent every day of my life in Caulfield pretty much. And um, yeah. It, I found it interesting, your choice of words around, I did what I was expected to do. Absolutely. It's, and it's so much the narrative for, I think it's very relatable, not just as a Jewish person like myself too, but you know, um, when you come from an ethnic or minority group or refugee group in, in Australia um, or any group really, there's just a set of expectations. And Definitely. I think so much of it, of becoming, you know, that, that transition from um, youth to adulthood is sort of realising um what you have to do 100%. and what is for you for your own self to decide how much you opt in. Yeah, 100%. And that that's, uh, I think, a really interesting challenge for a lot of young Jews growing up. And uh, and I definitely felt that I was supposed to follow in my accountant father's footsteps. And I did a commerce degree as a result. And um, I definitely got a lot out of that. But but I <laughs> at some point decided that I was never going to go into the corporate world and um, decided that, that I was going to take a turn away from those expectations and do some other things. But yeah, no doubt going through VCE and, um, and just having the pressure to succeed academically and, um, to take high powered, high paying jobs is, is definitely still something that exists in the community. Although I'm pretty confident that it's changing and I'm pretty confident that people are now becoming more and more able to take on the opportunities and the jobs that they want to and, and find the things that they're passionate about and dive into them, which is awesome. I have a question I want to come back to in my pocket about sort of youth movement time and how that weighs into what you decide to do with your future and perhaps why that's a part of yeah. becoming such a community-minded person. One, yeah. But perhaps let's go back a little bit and just talk about um, the first time you ran a, a camp. Yeah. Um, was it called Flying Fox then? So or? it wasn't called Flying Fox. Well, well I finished I finished school in, in 2009 and um, ended up a year after that getting a call from a parent of a young guy with autism and she just heard from a friend of a friend of a friend of a friend, classic Jewish community networking, that um, I played soccer and she thought that I might be someone who would be interested in having a kick in the park with her son who um, yeah, who had autism. And, and I didn't know anyone with autism, but she just got told that maybe I'd be someone who'd be interested in, in being friends with him. And really, that's all she wanted. She wanted a friend uh, for her son. And Friday afternoon, go to Caulfield Park and just hang out kick a soccer ball around and and I loved it. We got along really well and I ended up spending a couple of years working with with that young guy and got so much out of that relationship. Still do get a lot out of the relationship 10 years later. Mm. Um, but his mum was a teacher and spent a lot of time training up the, the people working with him and inspiring them and empowering them to get involved in not just his life in whatever way we wanted to, but also to work in the disability sector. So alongside my commerce degree, I was developing this passion for disability at the, at the same time. And yeah, then moved to Sydney for a year, volunteered on a camp there for young people with a disability and kind of loved that model. So that's, that's where we, we decided to, to bring it back a year later to Melbourne. And um, we, yeah, we prepared in 2014 for that first camp, probably spent 12 months getting ready for it and took 19 young people with a disability away for uh, for four days to Phillip Island. And in hindsight, probably bit off way more than we could chew and didn't realize it at the Massive. time. But um, we, had, uh, we had 39 year 12 graduates from the Jewish schools put their hand up to volunteer and to support those, uh, those young people with a disability. And it was just the most fun experience ever. Was that quite, that must have been pretty heartwarming. Oh, absolutely. I mean, we, we took people away who had never been away from their families before and was that were able to provide a safe, warm, happy, friendly space where they could let loose, have fun, make friends. It, it, it's pretty amazing to look back five years, five years later and, uh, and see that we, yeah, we did take that risk and, uh, we did provide those opportunities at the beginning. Uh, we, we, we had the training, you know, we, we, we looked into it. We, um, we managed all the risks. We got nurses. We got a psychologist. We did everything we needed to do to make sure that everyone was safe. How do you even know what you have to do? Is that because you've done the Sydney experience? Yeah, definitely in part. I, I by then worked in disability for four or five years, and um, and I had a little bit of knowledge. So so maybe I knew more at the questions to ask rather than the answers. So we we were really conscious. I was twenty two at the time, and. I was the oldest person on our team and ancient, ancient. Absolutely. Don't know how they accepted you. They shouldn't have. They really shouldn't <laughs> have. Um, and yeah, so we knew the questions we needed to ask and we surrounded ourselves by really smart people, put together an advisory board of experts in the disability sector and just really 
put in a, a lot of work to connect with people who could guide us through that process. Yeah. So that was a, a big, big part of the first time around. But also we developed relationships with the families and worked really hard over that first year to gain the trust of families who um, maybe had been let down by the community quite a bit or, or by- The community or by or the disability by, sector? Yeah, probably a bit of both. Yeah. Um, we, we do live in a tight-knit community and for a long time that meant that anyone who um, didn't fit in in one way or another did feel the stigma mm. and, and we, we heard lots of stories early on about families not, not feeling connected to the Jewish community. That's sort of the, um, the fascinating paradox of the double minority in a yeah, way. So yeah, being a minority group within a minority group um, is not so much about community no, much of the time. Absolutely. Uh, we've, we've seen a massive, massive shift in that over the last five years. But when we started, we did hear a lot of stories about people not feeling welcome, um, which sucks. Like, that's really, that's really bad. Um, we don't want that for it's anyone. It's heartbreaking. And yeah. I, I think we, yeah, maybe a lot's changed in the past decade as well yeah. around that. Definitely. And I think what, what happened with us is just because we ran camps, well, we, we ran a camp at that point, um, we we saw the community that we could create and we saw that for four days there were 100 people on camp, there were 19 young people with a disability and all the volunteers and staff, and we saw that we could create this warm, inclusive community and thought that that could be a pretty cool um, microcosm of the rest of society if we do our jobs properly. Mm, it's so a very would, interesting way to look yeah. at it. And and it, it has become that. every Every camp is so... It, it feels, it does feel like a little community and a little family. And that's a, a little bit corny and cliched, but it's definitely true. And what's ended up happening over the last five years is a lot of the volunteers and the participants have connected and developed real friendships. And um, also a lot of our volunteers have gone on to work in the disability mm. sector and, and they've taken the the really positive vibes from the camp and pumped it into the rest of society. And the goal is has definitely never been to, take our volunteers and to convert them into disability experts. Yep. It's been to get them to a point where when they own the local cafe up the road, that that cafe is going to employ someone with a disability and that cafe is going to be physically accessible and that cafe is going to take a little bit, uh, that the staff are going to take a bit of extra time to uh, support someone, to support a customer who might take a bit longer to order. And um, that hopefully will be at least in part because of the experience that those volunteers had with us before they went into the real world. So that, that, that stuff's amazing. And, and the community element of all of that's key. And so what was it like for you to be sort of somebody who's going down that accounting trajectory and in commerce, and then sort of you're doing this, you, you've discovered a passion for disability services and helping people. Yeah, it's, it's such a How do you question. reconcile that? Yeah. And is it something that helped you or is it something that sort of challenged your trajectory? Yeah, it's a super hard one. Um, it's a hard one for a few reasons. The one is obviously parents are, are supportive and want to be supportive all the time, but have they, they want what's best for kids and my parents wanted what was best for me and that for them, like so many other adults in the community, meant successful, stable nine-to-five job. Yeah. Where I could- And minimise uncertainty, yeah, I feel, is a absolutely. key in, in Jewish families particularly. Anything yeah. they don't know or understand is a threat yeah. and is bad. Uh, yeah, big time, yeah. big time. And and this was new and this was me taking on something that was not the typical path. Um, so that was one one reason why why it was a challenge early on. Um, not that my parents weren't supportive, they always were, but but definitely it was this was different to their expectations. Another one is socially as well. Uh, you know, a lot of- um, all my friends have gone into the corporate world and this is a different path to them as well. So naturally being doing, doing something different, yeah. spending your life doing something different means that, um, yeah, you, you, you notice the differences between you and your friends. Absolutely. More and more, so that's, that's a bit hard too. can drive a bit of a wedge. And there, yeah. there's that also that thing you said about sort of being in the community where most people think a certain way or do a certain way. Yeah. And then you've just, Oh, maybe I don't think that way or do yeah, that way. Definitely. That's quite a challenge. Yeah, definitely. Um, but separate to that, um, it, the the skills that I learned going through my commerce degree, or the the basic understanding of things like just accounting one hundred and one, um, super important. Couldn't can't start a charity, can't start any project without understanding those basics. So so really happy that I did hmm. get that education. Um, 
and also through through the process, uh, Hunter in his podcast spoke about Jan Owen and speak about her as well, that the, the one thing that I heard her say once was that if you can't talk finance, don't bother starting a charity or don't get into the nonprofit world. Yeah. And, um, that's paraphrasing her, obviously. But, it's, uh, it's an interesting, it's paraphrasing Hunter, paraphrasing Jan, yeah, which is yeah. nice. It's now a triple, if anyone Absolutely. paraphrases you and continues the chain. Inception. Um, <laughs> Many layers, <laughs> but, but a very useful and profound comment. Definitely. And, by and somebody I who's really, you know. really see that. I really do see that, that um, without that knowledge, I can't go out and fundraise. I can't ask people for money if I can't demonstrate that I'm going to use their money yeah. in a responsible and respectful way. Yeah. So that that's really important. Getting the, the, getting the commerce degree and taking studies a little bit seriously Super important. So, do you, would you have preferred then, um, if I pose an interesting alternative to, yeah, sure. do you think it's easier to go from being a commerce student to a um, a founder or expert in this disability sector than it would be to go from you know being a disability worker yeah. to starting a, a great question, a social enterprise or business in this space? It's, it's a great question. I mean, the the great example of of the other side to to me is is Jordan O'Reilly of Higher Up, mm. um, who should definitely come hang out with you. Uh, Jordan started as an OT and he's got a personal connection to disability, but he is now running a super successful business. So obviously you can take the education that you've got and turn it into yeah. anything and fill in the gaps in, in your education as well. But for me, uh, I'm very confident that the commerce degree set me up with um, more of a foundation to be able to take on the challenges that we've experienced than yeah. if I had done a, a health sciences degree or something like that. Well, you need a model to see the world and understand yeah. fictions. I mean, yeah, I, I think, you know, it's like, I've been a bit obsessed with Yuval Harari lately and his yeah. ideas around storytelling and, you know, the stories we agree on and tell each other to create meaning. And um, when you're dealing with the concept like a business or a, or a, a company or a legal person, you know, or, or profit or Definitely. all these things, yeah, we need a model to understand that and i think commerce even if it's if it's not inherently the most you know useful um or congruent in its its values at least it gives you some way of thinking about what you're doing that's useful and logical yeah big time and that's that's interesting i I suppose if you go into a commerce degree and you've got the right values to want to do good in the world then the commerce degree is going to allow you it's going to give you that foundation to be able to use those values in um a capitalist society, I guess. That's right. Um, and if you've got the values, but maybe you don't have those hard skills or that that knowledge, uh, I, I see where the challenges would be. And I, and I think that people who would study a health sciences degree and want to do these things would probably have a slightly steeper mountain to climb uh, or would have to seek out support from people who had those business skills. It, it's interesting. For us, we set up an advisory board at the beginning that was made up of disability experts because that was what we thought the gap was in our knowledge. Yeah. But we had people around us and, and myself who had the basic business knowledge. Right. Whereas now we're at a point where we feel like we, in some respects, are experts in disability. So our board of directors is made up of business people. So it's fascinating. Whatever the gaps are in, in the knowledge, you supplement it with the people around you and hopefully ask all the right questions and then um, – be able to yeah use use those people and uh, work together to turn stuff into a success. Yeah, so let's let's talk a bit about governance and steering the ship a bit because I, I think it's you know as a really young person starting something that's becoming and been very successful. I mean, how important was it for you to get that kind of group of wise heads around the table? And even though it's fluxed a lot and it's yeah. changed in its its composition, could you imagine doing it without that group? Yeah, it's uh, it's interesting. I, I think one one re- we definitely needed that support, a hundred percent. But one reason why that comes to mind first is because, and when we can talk about this separately, of course, but it is because of the way that society still sees young people that we needed adults around us to back us. Yeah, um, whether that's right or wrong, I'm not sure. But we we got those more. Uh, settled, seasoned, seasoned people, and um, <laughs> and definitely benefited from not just their skills, but also the the imagery around having adults support people. So when I would go out fundraising early on, people would say, "Like, how do you know what you're doing?" And mm. I'd say, "Well, I've got these adults helping us, mm. and they 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 guard me down." Yeah, Isn't that weird? let's talk about that as well. Um, maybe afterwards, yeah. but let's finish on the governance point. So, would you advise people in a similar position to you? I mean, what are the things they should be thinking about when they're thinking governance? Yeah, I think figure out what what the gaps are in your knowledge mm. and and fill it 
by getting other people around yep. you who have that knowledge, that's that's key. Keep it really simple. So filling Definitely. knowledge gaps. Were you thinking much about biases or sort of blind spots that you might have in your thinking? Um, I, maybe, but I think for me, I more wanted people who – I didn't want devil's advocates. I didn't want people who were going to just challenge and critique the whole way through. Yep. Accountability is a key part of governance, but I think mentorship's more important. Yep. And we found a group of people who – in our current board of directors and our initial advisory board who were passionate about supporting young people to do things. So having a board who were playing the role of mentors for me trumped governance, which meant that I wasn't super fussed about blind spots and super fussed about the skill stuff. Mm. I I just wanted people who I could give them a call one night and say, what do you reckon about this idea? And they'd say, yeah, cool, go for it. And then let's worry about managing the risks afterwards. Let's talk about the practical side of that. How how did you go about targeting the right people and then inviting them to play the role of uh, advisory board member. Yeah, we you've got to use the connections that you've got at your front door. So we went, I went to one of my dad's clients and then went to one of his friends and then one, went to one of his friends and one of his friends. And all of a sudden we had, I said, here's a few times. And that was a, there was a good gender split on that, on that board initially, but, um, but we ended up with an advisory board of one connection and then the next and then the next. And, I think not being afraid to ask for help from the people who are around you, friends and family was really important for us. It was just, it wasn't even that hard to be honest, because people want to be asked for help and they want to be asked for advice. It's super flattering. And we didn't go in there asking too much. We we were humble and we knew what we were looking for, which was support and guidance from people who knew more than we did. So I, I don't see many people in the world who would say no to that opportunity. Did you um, find it hard? I mean, I don't <coughs> I don't imagine that you would have, but I'm just going to ask anyway. Did you find it hard to sort of ask those questions and to be humble about maybe saying, even though I'm doing this, I don't know all the answers? Because adults a lot of the time would sort of be like, if you don't know all the answers, why are you doing this? Don't do it. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, I think we, in this game, admitting your faults and your weaknesses and the gaps in your knowledge is something that is it holds you in almost better stead than think than pretending that you know everything for sure um we we experience that all the time with donors that if we go to one of our supporters and we say to them this is a mistake we made we got this very generous donation from you and we actually didn't use it in the way that we intended to because of xyz they're actually going to give us money again because mm-hmm. they know that we're learning from those mistakes and and I think that was the same early on that if we go to an advisory board member and say to them this is something that I don't know. They they want to teach us and empower us and inspire us. Uh, I think it's human nature. You you want to impart your knowledge onto others. So just by asking those questions and being open to that was the right move, but it was a necessity as well. We couldn't have gone in and said, we know everything, help us out. Like that just, it's just counterintuitive. It wouldn't have worked. And so you're evolving now as well. So you, you, you've changed your, what you needed on that board uh, from that board has changed. So yeah. you've changed the people on the board. And I guess then the next layers are, you know, thinking about um, the layers of uh, diversity that you have on that. Do you want to have gender mm. diversity? Do you want to have cognitive diversity? Definitely. Do you have a disability advocate on the, um, on the board? Yeah. Are those things that you kind of think a bit about now? Yeah. So the disability side of it's a, an obvious one for us. We've got um, three or four people who have a disability or family members of, of people with a disability, which is, which is cool. Um, and, and also the definition of disability is a really hard one in today's society where there's so much going on behind closed doors that, yeah, I, I would never say that anyone on on our team that has a disability or doesn't have a disability yep. or anything like that without having that conversation. So mm. we we've got definitely that diversity ticked off, um, and that's not just to tick a box. That's because it's important to have representatives from the people from the demographic that we're working for and with. Um, gender diversity is an interesting one for us. It's the opposite, I would say, to the rest of society where. There's, there's a need to make sure that women feel included in every workplace uh, at, at every level of any organization. For us, we need to do that for men yes. because we're in the health sector. I've worked in the health sector um, many years and I found the exact same thing. Yeah. It's funny because it's, it's sort of the reverse conversation that's Definitely. happening everywhere else. Definitely. And yep. um, we have more female volunteers and staff and there's a natural inclination towards females for board positions too. I think a lot of the time in, in the health sector or, or for us, when we're looking, um, when we're looking around, there are more women who 
are suitable for these roles and that's awesome. But we also need that gender diversity the other way because th- there's no reason why men shouldn't be playing caring roles in society. Oh, and, 100%. Um, and we also have a lot of – most of our participants, the majority are males, and if they turn around and say they want a male support staff or um, carer or whatever word you want to use or friend – we need to be able to provide that. And that means that we've got to be able to show that men can play a role in the health sector and in the disability sector and in flying Fox across the board. Um, So yeah, gender diversity is definitely something we think about. It's probably the opposite for us to the rest of society though. Let's pivot back to the point about youth. And and I suppose the bizarre thing that because you happen to be a younger person who's doing something really interesting and brave that you need to have a group of older people backing you to give you legitimacy and authority in a conversation. Absolutely. It's it's super interesting. Um, I don't find that as much now. Definitely found it for the first three Mm. or four years of the five-year journey. Um, but we do have a very capable board and we've got, um, the backing of adults. Do we need it to have the conversations? Um, maybe, maybe we still do in some ways. I think one way we've really benefited from being young people is that I don't rock up to meetings with donors in a suit and I'm different. And, and that's, I think, appealing for a lot of our donors who just see, much of the same coming through their doors from a business perspective and a fundraising perspective day to day. Uh, so that's quite cool. And we've benefited in that way. Um, I've, I've benefited personally hugely from having the, the more seasoned uh, people hanging out with us because you doubt yourself naturally going through this process and you're making big decisions and you're taking responsibility for people's lives. And that's hard and scary. So to have people who do have more knowledge and experience uh, has helped me and our young team grow through the process as well. It's, it's, been, it's just been mutually beneficial. So I that think. sounds like um, you don't have too much issue with sort of the way that I put it um, early on. So the, the fact that you needed that backing early on, I think that you, you take that as more of a fait accompli and that's that's just how it was back then. I, I think and so. Maybe it's changed a bit now. Yeah. I, think that's, I think that was probably the reality um, early on and it was um, probably – Something that if we if we didn't have the adults there helping us out, we wouldn't have been able to prove that we could do what we were able to do. It might suck that we needed to do that, but you know, I, I don't mind it. I, I'm more happy to reflect on the fact that we actually got the support from the people around us, yes, uh, from those adults, rather than being knocked knocked back. Um, and is it is it yeah. sort of fast track the growth a bit as well, having that group around you? Oh, definitely, because also people are passionate about seeing young people succeed and we were able to find those adults who were keen to open doors and keen to yeah just really advocate for us in all walks of life and and our prerequisite with that isn't that they had any set of skills it's that they went to and they went out for dinner with friends and when someone said to them what are you doing in your life right now they said flying fox that that was that is still is a key prerequisite for being on our board. It's that Flying Fox isn't just a footnote in someone's life. It's actually a core part of their life. And by having people who see Flying Fox as a core part of their life, it means that word's always going to spread um, in lots of different areas of society because we've got advocates there advocating so, for so us. So how many, give, if that's the case, are you the one who does a lot of the coffees, my, my friend's friend of a friend, yeah, friend about what you do? My, my full-time job's having coffee yeah, with people. Yeah, Absolutely. basically. And I think- it's really ironic because you know if you if you if an alien was observing Earth and you said what are the most important people on Earth do and then you told these aliens oh they just have a lot of coffees with yeah. different people <laughs> but, but a lot of the time you yeah. know those that, that's where things happen. Well, hundred percent conversations. That's that's what this is all about. It's um, selling people on the ideas, selling people on the stuff that we're passionate mm-hmm. about. More, more than that, what I have really come to understand for myself is it's much easier to create a vision with someone rather than selling them a vision. Yep. So bringing people into those conversations early on and meeting with them, not to ask for something, not to ask for money, but to really get them to buy into the question and to shape that vision, to shape where we're, um, where we're heading as an organization together rather than um, saying, this is where we're going. We need your help to get there. Yep. That's been really effective um, and genuine as well. That's not me asking people for advice just to get money. That's actually something that we really do need the input and guidance and support and engagement from a whole gamut of people to to be able to succeed. So those coffees, you're sitting in a buzzing environment with lots of people around, lots of people getting to know each other and talking about a whole range of ideas. And, you know, you're, 
cafes are the best place ever to come up with amazing things. And, mm. um, and we've benefited from that as well. You can sit across the table from someone and you take a serviette out and you write an idea down and all of a sudden that idea becomes reality because mm. you had a coffee together. Mm. It's very cool. It's awesome. Uh, tell me, so we've talked a bit on your first camp and so where you've got from a governance perspective. Where are you at now in terms of uh, how many people do you have working for you? Yeah. You're full-time in the organisation full-time. Now. Uh, Flying Fox runs a not-for-profit um, what are your activities that you're doing yeah. now? So, so five years in, we've run 70 camps, seven zero, uh, for probably 250 young people with a disability and about 500 volunteers have come through our doors. And a big part of it is running the camps and then, uh, also continuing. We're, we're trying to get to a point where we run these camps and then we continue the relationships afterwards as well. We're not quite there yet, but we're really good at running camps. Um, we spend a lot of time training up our volunteers. So we do four or five days of training in the lead up to all of our big camps and bring in new volunteers. And the volunteers aren't your usual suspects either. It's lots of different types of people who, who want to get involved, um, just because it's fun or cause it's with their friends or, you know, why not go away for a couple of days and yep. just have a good time kayaking and swimming and bowling and going on the ropes course and whatever else. It sounds pretty awesome. It is. It definitely is. So so because it's fun for everyone, we're able to get a whole range of demographics of people getting involved, uh, which is very cool. Um, but yeah, this year we'll run 16 weekend getaways for smaller groups of, of young people with a disability. And we'll run uh, three or four bigger camps as well for 20 or 25 people with a disability and 50 or 60 volunteers and staff. Um, we'll run educational programs in the schools as mm. well. Um, we did a ski trip this week. So we took uh, seven or eight adults with a disability to Bulla and just went skiing. And these are people who, um, unfortunately, for most of society, if you saw them walking down the street, you wouldn't think they were doing much in their lives. And that's crude, but it's the reality. Mm. Uh, and they're just having fun with friends skiing. Like, that's awesome. They're the same as everyone else. And breaking down that barrier between our participants and the volunteers uh, is a reflection of how we can break down the barrier between people with a disability and the rest of society out in the real world. So you've it's, almost it's all um, perfectly answered what my next question was going to be, and that is, what is why do this? What's the yeah. impact overall? How how is the um, the person with the disability different after yeah. participating in this? Well, f- firstly, there's just the just the fun. Mm. Like that's that's kind of enough for me. That if we can take. 200 or 300 people with a disability away for a few days at a time um, throughout the year, that's awesome. Like, let's just have fun and um, give people the opportunities that everyone else gets. Yes. But really what we've actually seen is the the long-term impacts are that people come on our camps and they grow in confidence, they grow in independence, they um, have an ability to navigate the real world easier than maybe they otherwise would. Um, we, we got some amazing feedback from a parent recently who called us and said that their kid finished high school and went out into the real world after finishing up at his special school when he was 18. And he transitioned out of school into the real world far easier because of his experiences coming on camp with us throughout his childhood. That's what I wanted to hear. That's awesome. Like, that's very cool. That's what I want to hear. And, and that's what I imagine it is, is, is maybe it's about these are experiences that we all take for granted um, if we, we're not struggling with a yeah. um, disability or something holding us back. And for the people that don't experience these sorts of things regularly and in their lives, it must just be really hard. And social yeah. connection, we know, has so much to do with growth and opportunity Definitely. and development. Definitely. It's, it's all about making friends. And mm. um if you if you don't have friends, I mean, the, the challenge of loneliness is something that we all, I think, fear in one way or another. And people with a disability, unfortunately, experience that in waves. So just a few days away on a camp can lay a foundation for fun and friendship that can last hopefully forever. I read a statistic recently that um, suffering from loneliness or extreme loneliness is about as bad for you as smoking a pack of cigarettes a day. Yeah, uh, I'm, not, I'm not, not surprised at all. And we... Yeah, we, we see the emotional state of some people coming on our programs on the first day versus how they are on the last day. And they're just a different person because they've been around supportive, positive people. And um, that's that's just, it's, it's amazing. It's a shame and it's, it's pretty terrible that, that we even need to exist. We, we need to exist because society sucks at including people. Yep. Um, largely. If someone's different, we spoke about it before, if someone's different, then they're excluded. Mm. Um, that that sucks. So if we can get to a point where 
everyone in society can be far more welcoming of anyone with any different ability or appearance or anything else, then we don't need to exist as an organisation. And that's really the goal. We want to do ourselves out of a job. And that should be every um, community organisation's goal, yeah. arguably. Um, so if this is a systems failure or a sort of a societal failure to not include everyone the right amount, yeah. then maybe that's a logical segue to talk a bit about the NDIS and sort of how you fund yourself and how you're able to pull on these terrific programs. Yeah, definitely. So we, when we started, we um, we charged like a nominal 100 bucks or something for a four or five day camp, which is next to nothing. It's a bit of cost, cheap, cost cheap babysitting. Yep. Um, and over time we happened to be in the right place at the right time with the government deciding to put on the, to, to set up the NDIS, the national disability insurance scheme. And the whole point of that is it's giving people with a disability choice it's saying, we're not going to give a big organization a million dollars. We're going to give that million dollars to, to each individual mm. spread out. And we're going to say, tell us what your goals are. And we're going to give you that money to go and achieve your goals, to find organizations and services that can support you to achieve your goals. And that element of choice is pretty awesome. Uh, it gets people to a point where every organization has to be bigger and better to meet the demands of, of people who now have control over their lives when for a long time in society they didn't. Mm. So for us, we, uh, we've got a great connection with our participants and people want to use their NDIS funding on our programs because the outcomes are long-term and lasting. And also, even if they're not, it's just how much, like how much fun can you possibly have? Like, it's amazing. So yeah. people come, come on camp with us and, and have fun. So they want to keep using their funding so they can keep having fun. Um, but we're in the right place at the right time. And we're able to more or less cover the costs of our programs, not our overheads and not the running of the organization entirely, but of each program because of the NGIS existing. So for all the yuck stuff we see in the media and all the really hard stories that some participants, some people with a disability are going through and uh, the, the teething problems that the NDIS is having, we have definitely seen our participants and their families on the whole benefit from the experience. There's lots of teething problems and lots of stuff that needs to be worked out. But I mean, our parents don't, uh, don't talk about the challenges with Medicare from when it started, however many yeah, years ago. Yeah, so yeah. I would hate to know what those challenges were. Oh, look, I think we have a good way of forgetting yeah. um, some of the early challenges of these sorts of dramatic changes. This is a um, this is a once in a generation change Absolutely. that uh, really I believe will revolutionise the sector, and it's just a matter yeah, of time. time. Big time, and and we yeah we're in a position where we where we as an organisation can generate. If we can maximize how much revenue we can generate, it means we can continue providing more and more and more opportunities for mm. people with a disability. So it's the the classic Dan Pallotta TED talk um, talking about you know, profit not being a dirty word. And, and for us, the more money we can make, the more programs we can provide and the greater impact we can have. So the NDIS is doing wonders for us, which obviously means doing wonders for our participants. Um, again, lots of teething problems and lots of work to, to be done. But on the whole, it's it's working. And what about the sustainability of your model and your approach? How are you going with your composition? Because I assume you've got an interesting mishmash of fee-for-service, yeah. you've got the NDIS, you've got some philanthropy, you do some fundraising. Definitely. Is it sort of all about pulling on the different levers or whack-a-mole a little bit? <laughs> yeah, it's uh, <laughs> it's a hard one. We we know like every non-profit, every good non-profit, you should be trying to generate your own revenue. We're lucky with the NDIS that we can do that through our core programs. We, we did dabble in the social enterprise world and um, we had a flower business called The Best Bunch where we made one type of flower arrangement each day and provided an employment opportunity to people with a disability to make those arrangements and do the delivery deliveries. And it worked. We broke even in, in the 12 months that we ran it uh, and it was awesome. It was a lot of fun. It got a, a lot of recognition and um, it, it, was, it was a really cool project the problem was that we didn't have one person to champion the project. Yeah. So it became a distraction yeah, that's uh, right. from our core business. It's the same challenge that so many businesses face. Yeah. Uh, and we definitely did. Um, so we actually decided to cut it because we like running camps. It's what we're good at. And we didn't want to be pulled away from that. So um, 
the, the social enterprise world is definitely something we want to keep dabbling in and figuring out new creative ways to generate our own revenue. But we also know that that can't distract us from our focus, which is social opportunities for people with a disability. Yeah, and I think you, you made a really good point there about not wanting to um, rob Peter to pay Paul. So you do something a bit different, you try it. Uh, if it's adding to your mix, it's a good thing and you keep it. Yeah. But what is the point at which, you know, you kind of um, – you're – you're losing from what you do is your primary offering because yeah. of doing that other thing. It's, it's super, yeah, it's super interesting. We, I think that we can f- figure out a way to keep making money and uh, managing our costs and everything through camps. Mm-hmm. Um, so the one thing that we're doing now is we are, thanks to huge amounts of support from huge amounts of amazingly generous people, we are about to buy a holiday house for Flying Fox. Congratulations. So, That's massive. Very cool. And we are going to be able to run so many more programs because we're going to have our own set space to do it and that is a way for us to manage our costs because we can keep the tomato sauce and the vegemite in the house rather than buying a new one every single time yeah. um and no one thinks about that the no. tomato sauce and the vegemite <laughs> tomato sauce and vegemite super no important. one thinks about it. it's critical um, absolutely uh so we can we can make sure we uh, we store it in the right way and uh, use it from camp to camp and that means that we can obviously that's one of the smaller costs, but we can we can manage the costs better and um, run more programs moving forward. So you know maybe we we turn around and we run a thousand camps, but at a hundred of our own holiday houses, and we do the the classic Maccas. Um, we, we're not a fast food business; we're a property business. Yep. Well, maybe that's where we go, and we can become the accessible Airbnb providers for the country. Which could Don't be give it all away on humans of purpose. We've got a lot of <laughs> listeners now, so now well, early on, someone yeah. probably through the Foundation for Young Australians told me that you can't <laughs> sell a secret. So <laughs> if anyone wants to get involved in in spreading that secret, <laughs> give me a call. Some great ideas coming out here. Let's let's get into the you section. Um, you, you know, you've said so much about the wonderful things you're doing. I want to ask you some questions a bit more about you. And this is our Patreon Humans of Purpose Plus section. <laughs> This section is exclusive to our wonderful Patreon supporter community. If you believe strongly in helping people to traverse a meaningful career and life journey, well then we urge you to get behind the podcast and support us to make this content each and every week. In doing so, you'll have access to 20% bonus content in every episode, as well as a great range of options for both humans and now organizations too. Just hit the link in the show notes. Makes perfect sense. Thank you so much for being a great Patreon uh, Humans of Purpose Plus answering guest. Those were terrific answers. All good. So we'll get into the section now that's a bit more broadly um, about you, sure. um, just just for the for the general uh, items. Um, it sounds like, you know, having a small team, being in this business, you could be there for as long as you wanted in terms of work and yeah. take a lot of work home. Yep. I'm interested in how you manage yourself and how you take care of yourself. I don't, I don't do that well. Got a super, super, super supportive girlfriend. Um, so, and she started Flying Fox with me as well, and um, and a few friends as well. But, but she was there from the beginning, so that's cool because she really gets it and she gets the challenges that come with it. But she's also always happy to help out and fill in some of the gaps. Um, but that also contributes to the challenge because it means I take it home even more. Um, yeah, I'm not not good at balancing. Flying Fox in life. I think the the deep challenge that comes with it is that although Flying Fox has gotten to a point that it doesn't rely on me, I think my identity is really linked to Flying Fox. Mm. And that creates a, a really interesting challenge with me being 27 now and thinking about other opportunities or what else I might want to do in my life. When my life is so linked to the work that I do, um, it's hard to see what my life could look like without it. So, yeah, like, could you do other? Do you do other stuff? Like, what, what are you doing? I know you like yeah. to watch mon- Money Heist and you keep Travis <laughs> and you see the rabbi. Do you have uh, space for other activities? Yeah, so I love a few mentoring roles that I play. Mm-hmm. Um, I work alongside a couple of people running. Oh, I, I don't run it, but I but I'm a director of of a nonprofit called Validate Me, which is mm-hmm. a, a group of young people who are passionate about educating people on. Um, validation, self-worth, um, overcoming the challenges that come with things like social media. Mm. So I play a small role in that um, and also playing another small role um, as a director of a new organization that a couple of 14-year-old girls have started called Parachute. Their dad um, was, uh, his name was Ben Cow, and he passed away in a paragliding accident a couple of years ago. And uh, his twin daughters decided that 
or what what they experienced was that the first thing that dropped away for them was extracurricular activities. Um, and they want to, and they are going to fundraise to cover the costs of um, extracurricular activities for kids who have gone through trauma. Mm. So micro grants, four or 500 bucks, uh, let's help you go to dance classes or get a soccer club membership or something like that. Uh, so that was pretty cool because I actually got a call from their principal uh, who said, I've got these two two students who are really keen to set this up and I reckon you could you could help them out. Um, that was firstly super flattering. Secondly, how cool that a principal of a school is uh, is looking out for their students like that. Um, but also I, I'm able to do something alongside Flying Fox in, in with those two organizations that adds a little bit of diversity, but it's still, yeah, it's doing good and it's having fun. Um, and it's also that the common theme I think is the youth run stuff. It's all these, all the things that I'm involved in are, are youth run. So that's definitely a, a passion of mine, but I do, I am lucky that I'm able to tap into it in a few different ways. Um, still play soccer. So that's fun. Awesome. Um, get, get, I do get involved in, in different things and I love being out and about, but, um, but yeah, right now, as, as we sit here and record yeah. this, uh, work is definitely the biggest part of my life. And there's obviously inherent challenges that come with that. And so what's next for Flying Fox and what's sort of in the pipeline? Uh, yeah, so we're about to buy this holiday house that I mentioned, which is very cool. Uh, and once we do that, we'll have a, a real think about the next step or pivot for, for Flying Fox and what, what the strategic direction is for the organization. Uh, as far as I'm concerned, growth for the sake of growth is overrated. And if we want to focus on providing opportunities to the people that we've got now in our network, then let's do that to the best of our ability. Um, but the, myself and the people around me are, are obviously a bit too hungry for, than, than just settling for that. So we'll uh, we'll sit down with our team and we'll do what what our the chair of our board wants to do, which is to to wake them up one day and say we're going to run 200 camps a year from January next year, um, how do we do that? That sounds like submarine tactics to yeah, me. Yeah, yeah. And uh, and let's see what answers people come up with to overcome the, the the challenges that we would face transitioning from what is still a relatively small organization to a much bigger one. Uh, and through that process, we'll be able to figure out where we're going. But uh, it's a really interesting time for us. It's It really is. This is a, a massive milestone. We had our fifth birthday party at the start of the year, and uh, we're going to buy this holiday house now and then- um, at the start of 2020 or the end of this year, we'll be able to turn around and uh, and explore who we are and where we're going. Awesome. So I want to end by asking you two different things. What are your three biggest challenges that you have right now? Yep. And then I want to know, because you sound like you're really going well at it, what are your top three tips for fundraising and a, a, approaching um, people to help you cool. with your venture? So three biggest challenges. I think one is that that uh, that deep challenge around uh, my identity and, and how linked it is to, to work. Mm. That's one that, that I've got to figure out um, a good way to manage and combat. Uh, I think another one, we're getting personal, but I think another one is um, understanding how to manage criticism and feedback, especially within a tight-knit community. Although Flying Fox isn't a Jewish organization anymore, it's, it's far broader than that. Um, we still have a really tight-knit community that we've built around the organization. And that means that people feel very deeply connected to it. And when things work, you hear about it. When things don't work, you hear about mm. it. Um, so I think being able to recognize that criticism, take it on board and, and manage it is, is something that I need to, to work on myself. Um, and I think, yeah, what's a, what's a, th- a good third challenge for you? It doesn't you? have to be three. So um, I just sort of use that as a ballpark. Yeah. If there's no, two, there's, that's all right. There's definitely lots more. But, 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 uh, <laughs> How long have you got? <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, I think the third one would be managing lots of different stakeholders and um, and not not that I'm good about, good at it or bad at it, but just understanding the challenges that come with managing a board and a team of 12 or 13 staff and all of our volunteers and our participants and the yeah, donors. And it's just, a lot of different hats to wear. Absolutely. And um, figuring out how to do all of that to the best of my ability and not get flustered doing it is something that I'm conscious of. I think I am good at it, but it's something that I'm conscious of continuing to get better at. Awesome. And my, if you had to, yeah, your fundraising Yeah, my uh, three tips, tips for, for fundraising. Yeah. Notoriously um, hard area to yeah. compete in. Uh, I think one is to see donors not as the the kind of the gatekeepers to to the money that which is theirs, but to see them as just the other side of the same coin of running the organization. So I run Flying Fox and so do our donors. We've got two different roles within Flying Fox and we're equals in 
the pursuit of social inclusion for people with a disability. And as a result, the conversations that we have are honest and transparent and mutually beneficial. It's not me going to them and asking them for money to allow me to do my job. We're doing the job together. That's a big one. Um, another one is is a classic ask for money and you'll get advice, ask for advice and you'll get money. So definitely, definitely go in being humble and, and being open to, to new ideas and to feedback. That's key. Um, and the third one, this is a new one for me, but it's um, the relationship with donors can't be between just me and the donor. It's got to be with a broader network within the organization. So taking board members and other team members along to meetings with donors is really important because it's not flying Fox isn't about me. It's about, um, or it's run, but it's not just run by me. It's run by a whole team uh, and all of our volunteers and everyone else around. So if we can show our donors, uh, if we can develop relationships between our donors and other people within our network, then that'll go a long way. And although obviously we've got to understand that donors, uh, the other classic one is donors back the jockey and not the horse. Um, they back the person running the organization, not the organization itself. If they can have that trust and faith that more people than just myself are running the organization successfully, then everyone will win long-term. Let's call that the multiple jockeys theory. Yeah. <laughs> I like it. I awesome. like it. Well, let's wrap up. It's getting late. This has been an awesome conversation. How can people connect with you and learn more about your awesome work? Yeah, definitely. So so follow along on, on social media. Uh, look up Flying Fox. You might come up with a few pictures of flying foxes and bats and stuff on Google, but, <laughs> but we're, we're there somewhere. Uh, flying Fox AU on Instagram and yep. uh, and Facebook too. So you'll, you'll find us and you can get in touch with me directly through there as well. And always, always happy to have a coffee. Do you want to give out an email or? Yeah, yep. yeah, yeah. Just go, go for Dean at flyingfox.org.au. Awesome. And people should have been able to guess that anyway. Right? If you're, <laughs> if you're a savvy person who tries to hit up people on the internet, always yeah. go with first name and the company. Definitely. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for coming in, mate. Awesome. Thanks so much for having me. Cheers. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure you hit the subscribe button in your podcast player or the link in today's episode notes. Why not share the podcast with your networks? After all, 62% of our subscribers come from word of mouth recommendations and social shares. You could also leave us a five-star review and some kind words in the iTunes store. If you love what we do each week and want to support the show, you should join our growing community of Patreon supporters or consider becoming a show sponsor. To learn more about all of that, just head to humansofpurpose.com. <laughs>